listener production. How can you tell the difference between a little sniffle and the start of the flu? For your own confidence and sanity, as well as your child's health, you need to know what you can treat at home and when you need to seek medical help. This is Mother Doctor Nurse, our 12-week special series tackling the health and safety of our children. On this episode, our experts answer your questions about common childhood illnesses. Feed, Play, Love with Sarah Hunstead and Dr Deb Levy. Figuring out whether your kid has a common run-of-the-mill illness or something more serious can be tricky. And we can't rock up to the doctor every time we notice snot, a rash, a cough, which, let's face it, seems to be every other day. Nor can we be off work every time these things show up. So, how can we tell if an illness needs some TLC and rest or if it's something bigger? Luckily, we have medical experts on hand to help. Paediatrician Dr. Deb Levy and paediatric nurse Sarah Hunstead are here to answer your questions. Welcome to episode two of our special series, Mother, Dr. Nurse. Deb, Sarah, hello. Hello. So excited to be here for episode two. (laughs) Look, we had so many questions last week and Again, this week, and I think this one, this one is something I think a lot of parents have challenges with. I know particularly for those of us who have to work outside of home or even inside the home, that whole question of should I take them in or should I keep them home when it's not obvious when your child isn't in distress, obviously when, when we know how unwell they are, we all want to nurture our kids at home, but sometimes it's really borderline, right? Yep, it sure is. And you can be guaranteed that you're dressed, ready to go to work or whatever it is that you need to do. You're about to shove everyone in the car and then there's a great big spew or somebody spikes a fever or, you know, worse, diarrhea. But it does happen. Yeah, exactly. Let's get stuck into some questions. Our first one comes from Kylie. She asks, what is the best way to check temperature and when do we need to worry? I might take that one if that's okay. Because I I get excited about thermometers and things like that. So first of all, you've actually got something in your home already that is almost foolproof of knowing if your child has a temperature. It's actually on the end of your arm. If you put your hand on your child's chest or tummy and feel them, I guarantee you, you're going to know if they're hot. You know what normal is for your child. If you touch them, you're going to know if they have a fever. Now, often we want to know, you know, what the number is. And I'll get on my soapbox a little bit later about whether that number is important. But using what type of thermometer? So there are lots of different types. There are the tympanic thermometers, which are the ones that go in the ear. There are the underarm digital thermometers. There are also the ones that you wave over your child's temporal region or forehead, which will tell you their temperature. Now, when it comes to cost effectiveness and accuracy, I am just a fan of the simple digital underarm thermometer that you can just get from your local pharmacy. They're accurate and they're cost effective. So that's what I've got in my home. And I can see, if you could see in podcast land, Deb is actually nodding right now going, mm-hmm, yep. 
Now, if you want to invest in a tympanic thermometer, so the ones that goes in the ears, that's up to you. But please make sure you only use them in babies over the age of six months and really follow the manufacturer's directions. Otherwise, you're going to get 20 different readings every time you do it. And please, please, please don't use those sticky forehead ones that just attach to your kid's forehead and come up with, you know, a colour or a number. They're not accurate. Don't use them. I wish I'd known that because I went out, of course, when you're having your first child, you have this, these, well, I did anyway. I'm like, I'm going to get the best of everything. So I know I'm so totally on top of it. And I spent so much money on thermometers and they were such pains because I got the one that went across the forehead. I mean, who thinks you can do that to a baby anyway? Like they don't keep their heads still. And it was, it was so, when I found that out, I found that out about the underarm thermometer from you, Sarah, and it made so much difference. It's so simple and you really don't need all the gadgets. It's true. It's sometimes cost effective and accurate equals digital underarm thermometer. (laughs) And you agree with that, do you, Deb? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think the other thing, just to comment on, Sarah, about the ear one, you know, we do get a lot of errors with it. It's quick. You know, it's very easy to do on a child who is maybe squirming, but definitely do both ears too, because if your child has an ear infection, that one ear is going to register a fever, whereas the other ear may not, because what you're really measuring is the inflammation in the ear. That's just a little example of how things can be confused when you're measuring your child's fever. But um, yep, under the arm digital is the way to go. Now, Sarah, just take you back to what you were saying earlier in terms of using your hand to tell the temperature on a child. And I certainly have put my hands on my kid's belly and gone, holy moly, you are hot, there's something going on here. For those that want at that point to use a thermometer, tell us about the numbers, tell us when we need to be worried, tell us what we need to think about when it comes to measuring a temperature, now we know, with the underarm thermometer. So first of all, what is a fever? A fever is a temperature that is generally above 38 degrees Celsius. Now, do we need to worry about fever? Is fever an illness? It actually isn't. So fever is the body's natural defense mechanism. Imagine your child's body is being you know, invaded by that virus or bacteria. It's making them sick. Their body goes, whoa, hang on a sec. That's not cool. All right. It wants to do everything it can to try and kill that virus or bacteria. So one of those defense mechanisms is that it resets that, you know, temperature limit in the brain higher. So it's to heat itself up to kill that virus or bacteria. So fever is actually a good thing. It can make you feel terrible. I mean, I don't know if you as an adult have had a fever and you feel like crap, but it's not about the fever. It's about what is causing that fever. And when you go to the doctors, that's what they want to know. They're trying to find out what's actually causing it. Now, when you measure your child's temperature, it's about looking at them as a whole. That's just one little thing. So it's not about focusing on the number. It's about looking at your child as a whole. And I'd love to tell a story, if that's okay, that I think illustrates this point really, really well. Now, I'm going to put just a little alert in here first. If your baby is under the age of three months and they have a temperature above 38 degrees, even if they have no other symptoms, 
you need to get them seen medically, um, ideally taking them to your local emergency department, um, you know, because they don't have the immune system, the defense mechanisms, they can get sick really, really quickly. So under the age of three months, medical help, even with no other symptoms. So my little story here. Both of my kids, and they're very close together in age, in hindsight, probably wouldn't do that again, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> um, both of them were sick. One of them, the oldest, she had a temperature of 38.2. She was laying on the couch. She was refusing to drink. She was really drowsy, which was unusual for her. You know, I was having to wake her up to have sips of fluid and she just really was not keen on that at all. Um, her breathing was normal, like she didn't wasn't in pain or anything like that, but she was just didn't look right and I was worried about her. And I realised that she hadn't weed in about 12 hours. And I was like, oh, hang on a sec, this isn't good. My other one was sitting there. She was eating um, icebox and her temperature was 39.8 and she was saying mummy more Peppa Pig because that was her favorite <laughs> show at the time she wasn't her normal self but certainly she was drinking she was weeing she was interested in Peppa Pig so who was I more worried about it wasn't the number on the thermometer I was looking at it was my child as a whole I was really worried um, about my oldest because of all those other symptoms that she had and I ended up taking her to hospital um, because she was really quite unwell. And so the younger one, she was fine. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, took her to the doctor because, you know, I was worried they both had something that wasn't quite right with them. Um, but it just goes to show it's not just about the number on the thermometer. Look at your child. Deb, we have a question from Vic saying kids spiking temperature how many days is too long before I seek further medical attention? And I think that goes to, um, I guess, what Sarah was saying in terms of a fever being something that's combating an illness or a virus. And, and many of us parents would have heard someone say, just let it go for a few days, let the fever sort the virus out. So at what point do you say the fever isn't doing what it's meant to do? I need to take this child to a doctor. Mm, absolutely. I think you know, the first thing to mention, and Sarah's already highlighted um, one or two of them, is let's look at the red flags first, because this means we need to assess this straight away and not wait for a few days. The red flags are your child's age. So very young children under three months of age um, with a fever should be seen much sooner than an older child. The next element is going to be how unwell they look on themselves. Again, we're not going to wait on a child who looks unwell. But if you're talking about your average toddler with that six, 60th snotty nose of what feels like the month, <laughs> running around, playing, asking for Peppa Pig, you know, then you can certainly wait a few days. What do I normally say? Around about three to four days. As long as, and these are a few more flags that I'll bring up, they don't start developing new or worsening symptoms. They don't um, start then spiking higher fevers. But I guess that's the roundabout way of answering it. You've got to look at the child as an individual, their age, their state of health, and then see what's happening with their fever. Naomi asks, how can we help under twos get through colds and flus, and then in brackets, and COVID? Oh, Sarah, do you want to take that? Or Deb, I've, who's I've had the experience? Oh, I think <laughs> there is 
I would be doing Deb an injustice if I tried to speak on this one. So I think Deb really needs to go ahead with this. All yours, Deb. Thank you. The first thing I'd like to mention is that it is normal for children to have these simple viral infections. Around about 10 a year is what's stated, give or take. And as long as they're not having significant bacterial infections requiring hospitalization or it's impacting their growth and development, we kind of just let things run. We can certainly support them in terms of helping them manage their illnesses. I'm a huge advocate of healthy living, and that includes things like a healthy diet, being outdoors in the, sun, the sunshine, optimizing their vitamin D levels, making sure their zinc levels are all normal all ways to support children's bodies to better fight infections. In terms of managing those illnesses, I think that there is a degree of, well, you do just have to get on with things, but we can also help our children cope better with them. I think it's about making sure that you can support yourself too, because as Deb said, it's inevitable. There's going to be, you know, 10 episodes of this year and trying to make sure that you are in optimal health, both mentally and physically, to be able to cope with all of this is half the battle as well. Deb, I know that you love to look at health in a holistic way. Are there any foods or fluids that we could be giving our small children that will help with that yucky feeling? I'm thinking of um, a friend I had who's Chinese mother was like dead set on giving their little boy horseradish when he had a cough or something, those sorts of things that seemed, um, as a parent, you feel so helpless when they're unwell. And when she was saying, oh, this is what our traditional remedies are in our culture. And I was like, damn it, I've got nothing. (laughs) Chicken, Chicken soup. Yeah. But you know, you say chicken soup. Like as if it's a joke, but there's actually science behind it. So, yep, chicken soup. And I'm talking good quality, homemade bone broth, chicken broth, chicken soup. So that's actually one of my foods that I do recommend. Not only is it nourishing and nurturing, it's also hydrating because that's definitely one thing we have to keep on top of um, for children with fevers is their level of hydration. Um, In terms of specific foods, you know, generally speaking, it's talking about eating a rainbow and by eating a rainbow what that means is having fruits and vegetables of all different colors which then ensures our children get all those minerals and vitamins micronutrients phytonutrients that they need to help their body but I think if you can just try and increase those colorful foods and maintain your child's hydration you're ahead of you know sticking to that Coca-Cola and um, hot chips diet that your child may be asking for if they're feeling unwell, but they certainly shouldn't be having. When we're talking about colds in particular, and children can be quite congested, do either of you have any thoughts on vaporizers <laughs> or Vicks or those uh, baby or whatever those, those rubs are that our parents used to slather all over our chests when we were small? I know that I used a vaporizer. My son was congested for the first year of his life and I used it, but I couldn't tell you whether it worked or not. I'll let Deb take the medical side of that, but the safety side is what is, you know, sending these huge alarm bells off for me right now. And what that is, is that vaporizers are responsible for lots and lots of burns in kids. So if you choose to use a vaporizer, 
please make sure that it is kept out of reach, that your child is not able to tug on that cord and pull it down over themselves. Remember that it is something that can cause terrible burn injuries. So keep it out of reach. Make sure your child is safely away from it. And most importantly, know the first aid as well. And Deb, what are your thoughts in terms of those kinds of things when they're congested? I think there are two ways to look at it. One is what am I going to do here and now with this child with a snotty nose? And two, why do they have a snotty nose? It's always looking for me, looking to the root cause. In terms of what to do, I'm a huge fan of simple saline nose spray. It sounds like pretty soft, but it works if you do it properly, in my opinion. And how do you do it? I don't like the nasal drops, even on small babies. I go straight for the nasal spray and quite a few squirts up each nostril, plus or minus suctioning afterwards. I suspect Suctioning so satisfying. I was going to say, I suspect Sarah will have a funny story about (laughs) this one. Oh, I just feel nauseous. If you're going to talk about the one where you where you suck it out with your mouth, That's then it. I'm more oh, for you for trying no, that, Sarah. Stop this That's conversation. If anyone has, you know Sarah oh, has. No, but you can't. Lovely little machines these days. They do it for you. Um, but you don't always need to do that because what that um, what the spray does is it actually just thins the snot, um, and they then swallow it as opposed to it staying all gunked up in their nose. In terms of the next part, um, it's all about well. Why does your child have a snotty nose or nasal congestion? And I guess my three or four, I've just thought of a fourth one now, four main ones would be one, a viral infection, you know, a cold, two, allergies, three, a foreign body, and four, reflux. You know, so, and I think as a healthcare provider, it's really important to go through a thorough history assessment examination so that we can get to the, the cause of it because there's no point and keep on squirting up nose spray if we're not really looking at well what's happening and can we stop the cause of it so in that case deb is it worth taking your child to see your doctor if that congestion has been ongoing or recurring what's the balance between going let's get to the bottom of this congestion and accepting that in the first couple of years of a child's life, they're likely to have a lot of snotty noses. I agree. We should be having children assessed if they have a chronic ongoing blocked nose. I'm pausing a little bit because it can sometimes feel like that, but actually they are having breaks in between. So, you know, perhaps taking a bit of a symptom diary would be a good idea. Um, And then the other thing is if there's only one nostril that seems to be snotty, congested, etc. You know, that's the typical story we hear. And Sarah, you know, we've both had experience of this working in pediatric emergency for many years, is that child coming in with one green snotty nostril who's happened to have stuck something up there. You know, it could be months previously that no one has noticed. And uh, I know it's pretty gross. And it's caused, you know, the, this this chronic unilateral, so one-sided snotty nose. So those would be the two things, you know, the, the persistence and the unilateral. And there's usually a disgusting smell that comes with it as well. Yeah. From whatever has been shoved up there, not good. I remember helping a doctor remove a foreign body that had been shoved up a kid's nose for ages while I was pregnant and I had morning sickness. I had to leave the room to spew. Gross. 
Oh, I'm glad it's not me doing that. Um, <laughs> okay. Christy's question is, what is the truth about snot, especially green snot? My friend was recently called up by daycare to collect her child because he had thick green snot. Hope no one's having lunch right now. I know that from my kids, they actually tend to get green snot at the end of an illness and clear snot when they are most sick. I'll ask you that one, Deb. What's going on there? Absolutely. I mean, that's the that's the natural progression of a viral respiratory tract infection is that it'll start with a clear snot. And as those inflammatory cells increase in order to fight the infection, they actually start clumping together and making that snot look thick, mucousy and yucky. You know, it's so that would by far be the most common reason is that it is the tail end and things are healing. Because it's uncommon for young children to get sinusitis. Not impossible, but uncommon. I think the key takeaway there as well, when I heard Deb say this um, years and years ago, and it's always stuck in my mind, is that the colour does not correlate to if they are infectious. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Excellent. Keep that in mind. So Kyra asks, can RSV trigger things like bronchiolitis and croup or other respiratory illnesses? Deb? So RSV, which stands for respiratory syncytial virus, <laughs> is one of the really common viruses that people get, so children and adults. And depending on your age, it determines usually the type of symptoms you get. So you and I, when we would get it, we'd get a, a runny nose, a bit of a cough, you know, your typical cold. Young babies may get bronchiolitis and older children can get croup. So again, it's a mixed mash of things. So yes, RSV, which is highly contagious, always goes around. We always have seasons of it. Typically, as the um, weather starts to get a bit cooler, um, and yes, it can cause a whole lot of things. Is there any way of preventing it? Hand washing, <laughs> something we all became really good at um, during COVID. So hand washing, absolutely. And then no direct contact with someone who is obviously unwell. Not always possible, but, um, you know, not letting your children share toys, you know, obviously if not letting them go into contact with anyone who's obviously unwell, those typical things. No sloppy kisses, no sharing food. <laughs> well, that's right, exactly. All those things. Cassie says, my child seems to be congested all the time. Granted, she gets sick a lot. First year of daycare, plus she seemed to have an immunity debt. But it seems she always has congestion and you can hear when she breathes. At what point is this a concern? Um, I'll jump in here, Sarah, if that's okay. Um, I think... I've chatted a little bit about this already in terms of what are the causes of, of nasal congestion. So I do think if you feel a child has ongoing congestion, please go and see a healthcare provider who can work it out with you. And I would always be suspicious that something else is going on if there isn't those breaks. Still with the common childhood illnesses when they're little. Maria asks, regarding the amount slash intensity slash severity of illnesses a child gets in their first year, does it make any difference for the child if they are 12 months old or 30 months old? That is, are they likely to suffer less if starting childcare slash school 
late. Can I just say I love this question? It is such a good question. I think every single parent has thought this at some stage, and I can't wait to hear Deb's answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Look, children need exposure in order to develop a strong immune system. And when I say exposure, I mean exposure to the environment, exposure to the soil, exposure to sunlight. Like we need a whole lot of exposures in order for to build healthy bodies. Yes, our children do need to get sick. And for those who can't see me, I've got my fingers up in little bunny ears and inverted commas because we we do actually believe that um, with exposure to viruses and children um, being affected by them, it actually does strengthen their immune system so that the next time they're exposed, they're that much better at fighting it. So I can't tell you number for number in terms of, you know, if your child goes to daycare at six months or if they start at two years, how many illnesses they'll get. But we do believe that they will get a bucket load. Whether or not it's younger or older, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, and you don't necessarily want them starting school with having no exposure Mm. socially because... That's where they get their illnesses yeah. from, is from socialising and, and young children need 100%. to socialise. And one thing I'm also just going to add is what we've, we've, we've kind of seen this play out a little bit with COVID because with COVID, we put our children essentially in a bubble. Um, you know, no exposures to other children, which we, again, we can talk another time about all the social impacts of that and the mental health impacts. But the health impacts have been that when we've come out of the bubble, hello, Everyone is suddenly getting sick and they're falling hard. You know, that's us as well as our children, you know. So that just shows that we do have to actually be exposed to these viruses in order to fight them and, you know, be that much stronger next time we're exposed to them. And I think that's something that we're just hearing everywhere at the moment is how sick everyone is. And for somebody with personal experience who has just had norovirus rip through their entire household, I can certainly say that, you know, we just got to wade through this. Literally. <laughs> you don't I was waiting for that. I knew you couldn't leave it alone, Sarah. <laughs> oh, believe me, I'm not keen on sharing. I think I've still got a little bit of trauma from my night on the bathroom floor. But anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> See, it happens to the most experienced and expert of all of us. Um, Monique has asked, how can we help our kids' immunity when starting school? I guess this is something, Deb, you've already answered in terms of eating the coloured of the rainbow in fruit and veg and all foods. I'm wondering how you guys feel about something like probiotics. We hear a lot more about that sort of thing those sorts of supplements. You're both laughing. Who should I ask oh, first? Deb, 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 Deb. Deb. <laughs> yeah, yes. I Sometimes I'm actually called um, the poop doctor. <laughs> you know, she's got a poo mug. <laughs> like literally her mug is a poo emoji. emoji. It's so cool. For our live, I'll bring it, okay? <laughs> Please do. That is that is next week. So I want to see and the really poo mug. And really the reason I've known... For that and by that is because I am such a fan, and I'm totally geeking out here, but I'm such a fan of the microbiome and the impact it has on our children, um, as well as us, but obviously as a pediatrician, that's my focus. So 
that being said, in terms of answering your specific question, is there one specific supplement that can help our children's immune system? I wish there was a magic bullet. Unfortunately, there isn't. I think that supporting gut health is incredibly important, but it goes beyond a probiotic. Um, it's about, and I'm not going to get too sciencey here, but it's about avoiding anything that can negatively impact our children's immune system. Because, by the way, the reason that the microbiome is so important for our immune system is that it actually contains the majority of immunity for us. And that's over 70% of the immune cells sit inside our gut. And if you think about it, it's often our first exposure to things in the environment as well as we swallow things, you know. Um, so we have to support it by not harming it and then support it with the right diet. And that includes things like prebiotics as well as probiotic foods, plus or minus some supplements at the end if necessary, including possibly a probiotic. And um, when we talk about prebiotic and probiotic foods, if it's not a supplement, what are those foods? I'm happy to link to some more details for families so that they can get a list that they can actually look at. Um, but if we think about prebiotic foods, we're talking about under indigestible fiber foods. You know, the number one would be something like Jerusalem artichoke. You know, chances are you're not going to get your child to eat that, but you may get them to have some seaweed, some green bananas, not yellow bananas, and a whole lot more roughage in their diet. So that definitely is of benefit. So fiber is incredibly important. Probiotic foods are your fermented foods. What I give my daughter every morning is kefir, which is a fermented yogurt type drink. It's part of her smoothie. Um, but yogurt itself is also fermented food or even like some sauerkraut, some sauerkraut juice. Um, you may all be going, oh my goodness, there's no ways I want to get my child to eat that. But you'll be surprised, especially if you start when they're young and persevere and, and also model the behavior. Kylie asks, some information about common rashes would be good. When do we need to be alarmed? Sarah? Okay, we could talk about this for an entire seven hours in a podcast as well when it comes to rashes. And, you know, often you won't know what is causing a rash. And especially if your child has a fever and a rash, it's a good idea to pop off to the GP. But when do you need to be alarmed? Everybody's heard of that non-blanching rash, the rash that people talk about with uh, often meningococcal. There are other causes of non-blanching rashes as well. So what do I mean by non-blanching? It's that rash that when you press on it, it doesn't go away. So you may have heard of the glass test um, and so on, and I will uh, give you a link um, all about that so you can read more about what the glass test is and what a non-blanching rash is. But to be completely honest, um, if your child does have a non-blanching rash, yes, they absolutely need to be seen urgently. However, when it comes to illnesses, and I'm sure, Deb, please chime in if you have got more to add to this, you will majority of the time see other symptoms before that rash comes about. You're going to see quite an unwell child if it is, uh, you know, that meningococcal or other nasty, nasty um, infection that can be life-threatening, um, you'll see other symptoms before that of quite a sick child. And I would love to run through 
just really succinctly to recap those red flags that no matter what the cause of the illness that we are looking out for. Because I think at the end of the day, if parents and carers can keep in mind these signs to look out for, that is just one of the best tools they can have to make a decision about whether they need urgent medical care or whether they can treat an illness at home. Please do. What are the red flags? So the red flags, first of all, we're looking at their breathing. Is it normal or not? Okay. Their age. Is it a baby under the age of three months? Are they drinking and weighing enough? So what we're looking for, are they having less than half their normal feeds? They're not weighing at least every six hours. Are they overly distressed? They're not consolable or are they in pain? Do they have a non-blanching rash? Does your gut say that something is not right, that you are really worried about your child? Um, Look at their colour. Is their colour abnormal? Is it different to what they're normally like? And are they lethargic or drowsy? Are they really sleepy and it's not their normal sleep time? Are you having difficulty rousing them? These are the things that you need to look out for. We've actually got a fantastic mnemonic at CPR Kids called Abnormal. So we'll pop that in the notes below as well. But get to know those red flags because generally whatever the cause is, if you can look out for those, you'll know when and where to seek medical help. That feels like the most perfect summary. I know there are lots of questions we didn't get to, particularly about rashes. But if there's something more you want to ask, make sure you email us at feeplaylove at sca.com.au. So um, ladies, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's so good to be here. That's Dr. Deb Levy and Sarah Hunstead. They will be back next week and they're answering questions about why your baby is crying. It could be that they cry every afternoon at 5pm for an hour or they wake up crying or they seem to cry after a feed. So many questions and there are a number of ways you can ask them. This is going to be a special live event. So you can join us live on Thursday the 16th of February at 1.30pm Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Just check out the notes in this episode for the links. You can email us at feedplaylove at sea.com.au. See you then. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app, And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.